0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's not beat around the bush. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, DJ, producer, and lots of other things. It is Paul Young which is spelled P-O-R-L, Young. Anyway, you'll see that from the title. Um, Who I spoke to really recently to find out more about life, love and poetry was one time member of the band Rosetta Stone and has gone on to work with lots of other people and done lots of production work and DJing in various nightclubs around, mostly London, let's face it. Um, So this is the interview. You'll find out lots more information, so you don't need a lot of introduction, but fascinating all the same. So do make notes. I will test you at the end. So after several minutes of casual chat, very casual, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. I know, classic, isn't it? Anyway, Paul, over to you.
1: I mean, yeah, so... Yeah, I mean I, I guess for me the seventies was was a time of growing up as well, really. So yeah, I'm 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 yeah, I was born a little bit later than you, sixty eight. Really? Um, so um yeah, so the so the uh, a lot of it was uh, I mean, you know, it sounds like a terrible cliche, but an awful lot of it was probably the Beatles quite early on, just as a result of my mum's my record collection at home. Um yes. you know, so it was yeah, it was a lot of um you know, when I was when I was really quite young, listening to, um, you know, the the kind of classic early Beatles stuff, you know, the pop songs, help things like that, um, and then um, and then probably a bit of a, a bit of a moment when I discovered the White Album and just how kind of weird that was. So that was that was probably the beginning of of kind of a a, a musical awakening. Yeah. Um. And then, and then, kind of, you know, towards the end of the seventies, I was a bit young for the punk thing, um. But there were certainly bits of kind of there were there were things that kind of crossed over in terms of energy. So I mean, I, I can remember, um, you know, some of the, you know, what sort of started coming along in in terms of bands like Motorhead and stuff like that that I that I kind of found, you know, very exciting at that kind of age yeah Um, well absolutely yeah you know and and a lot of a lot of those kind of sort of british metal bands i think in the in the you know late 70s early 80s that that i found quite yeah yeah i found quite exciting and of course there's you know along the way as well you know bowie is as well actually um yeah Yeah. uh, you know yeah i can i can remember a friend giving me um Lending me his copy of Diamond Dogs um, and, you know, absolutely falling in love, love with that. And then I can remember as well my dad getting, a, a, when you used to be able to get tapes out of the library, <laughs> my dad going and just on the off chance getting me the cassette of Hunky Dory. right. Mm-hmm. Out of the library, um, and I, I think I had that on constant renew for about a year until someone had reserved it, and then I ended up having to take it back. So, yeah, I yeah, um, absolutely what... absolutely adored that album.
0: Well, I remember Diamond Dogs, it had an amazing song called We Are the Dead, which I always found very sort of when I was young that was quite a boggling song actually just the way it built up and the, and the lyrical content of it so I was, I was kind of mesmerised but bizarrely because I was like a bit older than you so punk, I, actually I felt I was, I, was brought, I was brought up in a village in East Anglia so frankly we didn't get that much kind of on the zeitgeist we were way behind the times yeah. um, but my, and my parents uh, you know, were kind of very working class so when they got married in the 50s they kind of had sold all their kind of basic stuff just to sort of get a home together or bung really so we didn't get a record player in the house until the early 70s and then my brother who was seven years older brought home albums like goodbye yellow brick road or bought albums like goodbye yellow brick road and also Sgt pepper which i was kind Mm -hmm. of mesmerized by but then he also got he was that generation who was really into prog rock that was right, thing. and yeah, I used to yeah. sneak into his room and listen to prog rock records <laughs> with great excitement. So I've got a strange kind of like love of yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, and Barclay James Harvest. So, but mm. then he also had Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. So there was a sort of a heavy metal thing going on. And being from East Anglia, you really, you know, it was like status quo were the band. You know, you did not say anything about the quo, otherwise you get beaten up. So.
1: Yes, me. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had I had friends at school that were um, you know, yeah, I can remember listening to a lot of Deep Purple as well and and buying, you know, buying some Black Sabbath records too, you know, it was yeah, it was an interesting kind of time that, I guess, you know, very retrospective kind, you know, very retro listening really. Um probably all of that around around about the time that things like you know, sort of all the post-punk stuff was starting to blow up. You know, and all the all the two-tone stuff was starting to become very popular. You know, there was a sort of contingent of people that were, you know, doggedly still listening to, <laughs> to yes. Deep Purple and um, you know and stuff like that. But there was a, there was a lot of exciting music around at that time as well. I mean, you know, I think the early '80s was um, yeah very very exciting. You know, for um, but it was, it was sure.
0: interesting because it was actually really tribal. So you couldn't really make the liking the, the beat because I remember no. we were in the bathroom thinking this is great. But if I look like I'm enjoying it, I might get punched as being a mod. And something yes. else and so you just you didn't even dare go oh actually I like this what are you going to do about it <laughs> no 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 exactly <laughs> I mean
1: uh, yeah it was uh, that was that was one of those things where you had to kind of tread quite carefully didn't you because yeah I, I can remember that sort of like you know being more into the kind of rock side of things um than than the two-tone stuff and there there was that kind of divide luckily I kind of got on with most people in my school actually so uh, you know I, I think I've I managed to kind of let on that I like UB40 a little bit and things like that and they thought I was all right as a result of that, you know, who was <laughs> so where about were
0: you brought up? Where were where was your home? Um
1: I was I, I, yeah so I was I was born in London um yeah, born in South London moved about a little bit as um well I was quite young I suppose. Um but but yeah I mean you know I was brought up in in, in West Sussex really so yeah on the south coast.
0: All right nice. Mm. So when did you start to sort of veer towards kind of playing like you know an
1: instrument? Um, so I guess, I guess I started doing that through, through school as, as you do, you know, again, it was that kind of rock influence, I, I suppose, um, you know, was made me kind of quite interested, um, in picking a guitar up at a reasonably early age, um, I think, I, first of all, I got a bass guitar, actually. I remember, my you know, th- there was a, a Christmas that my, my dad had managed to get hold of a, a, a an old bass guitar and practice amp off, off a colleague at work that didn't play it anymore. And it was, you know, absolutely dreadful old thing that was barely playable. And I kind of stuck with that for a few years and kind of just used to, um, yeah, play with a couple of friends in our bedrooms, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, and then I made a switch over to the guitar... I always loved playing the bass, actually. So you know, I've kind of done a sort of flip backwards and forwards between bass and guitar um, uh, over you know over the time that I've I've been playing the guitar. I suppose. How um, many people do
0: that actually? Do they?
1: No, no. It's interesting. I kind of st- I think I think it's because I kind of started with the bass and then I- and then I moved on to the guitar and kind of, you know quite liked all the different tones you could get out of a guitar. Yeah. All the different all the different effects you could play with and things like that. Um, and I was never really a terribly virtuoso guitarist, so, and then I think probably it was probably when I was in sixth form that I you know started being in, in more sort of proper bands and doing gigs and things like that, you know um, and at that point, I kind of stuck with the guitar. and then and then that kind of just kind of continued on after I left college. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know that was uh, that was kind of my introduction to it. I, I guess it wasn't um, a huge it wasn't a huge kind of concert you know conscious decision to get you know try and become a a, a really adept guitarist <laughs> you know I just actually enjoyed playing in a band um, yes. you know so I probably didn't practice as much as I should have done I just kind of enjoyed being in a band as much as anything um so yeah yeah, so yeah that
0: was, was your, what was your 80s like then what was your sort of first gig and your sort of the scene that you gravitated to because during that period you know there's the punk pop- Post punk period. And then 83, the Smiths came along, which for me was just like huge. And for five years, indie pop, there was all that kind of the June brides, the Wolfhounds, yeah, yeah, no, sort of the Triffids, the go betweens, the wedding present, all that was just glorious. But then even someone who was very keen on it, you know, you get a bit bored by, you know, five years later, it was almost like when, I shouldn't say it, but when the Smiths broke up, I, oh, I loved them. I was like, actually, yeah probably don't really, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't devastating. It was almost like, oh, they've got Strange Ways, here we come. That's fun. I'll listen to yeah. it. It wasn't that kind of a session that I had probably with the first couple of albums. And then X yeah, right. came along and then other things. But then during that period, we had, you know, we had that sort of psychedelic kind of neo-psychedelic scene and then the goth scene as well. So I just wondered yeah. if you started, you know, what sort of scene were you sort of gravitating towards?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was more the kind of alt goth scene actually in the 80s. yeah more so than probably the the, the indie stuff I, I had a very long-term girlfriend at the time that absolutely adored the smiths as well um and so I, I got to listen to a lot of the smiths and never really liked it all that much although you know kind of just by um constant repetition that there, there are certain certain smith songs i absolutely adore now you know because you know it's just they become they were became such a, a big part of my 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 you know late teenage life i guess um but uh yeah i mean i i would say it was was probably more it was probably more bands bands that I would very heavily into at the time with the cure um so yeah i mean that, i think that was my my first big love in in the kind of all you know alt pop you know yes. indie-ish kind of vein um and then obviously followed on from that the banshees and things like that um but i i guess kind of previous to that i you know i liked a lot of the kind of 80s pop stuff so i mean you know Duran Duran um i was you know very heavily into that ultravox as well at the time you know that um yeah yeah so they, i mean they were some of the some of the first gigs that i went to were those with those very big pop gigs you know so things like the things like Duran Duran and and um and ultravox so they you know Those are the ones that I can kind of, kind of, you know, really remember going to as being, you know, really excited about going to, you know, gigs on my own with my friends, you know? Yeah. And then, and then it turned quite quickly into The Cure and things like that and the Banshees and, you know, and then going to see um, a lot more. A lot of the kind of slightly smaller bands, as, as, as I kind of went through went through sixth form, I suppose. So it was, i um, going to the top rank in Brighton, which which was brilliant because you would you know you'd see the Cramps and the, and Julian Cope and you know Sisters of Mercy and you know all those all, the, all those kind of bands that played there. Um, I think the Cramps was probably one of my, my most memorable gigs. Yes, yeah. well, absolutely, yeah. but that must have yeah, been amazing. Yeah.
0: Did you see people like, you know, is it Billy Duffy from the cult? I mean, I just wondered if guitarists... Oh, starts... I did
1: see the cult. Yeah, I did see the cult as well, actually. Yes, yeah.
0: And I just wondered if you were being a guitar player or sort of, you know, fledgling guitar player, whether people like him were kind of role models or sort of influencers.
1: Um, interesting, really. Not, not terribly, actually. Um, yeah, I liked the cult. They, they weren't a kind of... Went massively on my radar i think you know i think i I much preferred still people like robert smith actually you know i I, I just like the kind of originality of it um there was you know some of the you know some of the very big cult songs i liked a lot and i kind of quite liked it when they went a bit rockier as well actually you know i I kind of quite identified with that too yeah i wasn't yeah i wasn't i wasn't overly overly kind of taken with them i mean the a band that i absolutely loved at the time that i that i probably saw more than any other in in kind of close proximity in in terms of number of gigs was was the bolshoi actually um who, who get very, very overlooked nowadays.
0: Oh, God, And I, right. and I absolutely
1: adored them, you know. So, yeah, I, 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 you know, yeah, I was I was kind of, that was an album that I got very, very obsessed with. Um, yeah, I mean, that kind of came out. It was the Friends album that I got very, very obsessed with, you know, and almost listened to nothing else for a little bit for the entire 1986, I think, and, and so it was Trevor Tanner. And, you know, I really, really liked his style, actually. I thought it was... Yeah, that, that kind of, I found that very influential yes. at the time. Yeah.
0: There was, there was a lot a of lot, those bands that, I know, actually, in, I didn't realise when I was doing this kind of thing, there were so many indie bands, even though I was, you know, their ish yeah. scene, you know, I didn't, you know, because there's another band called Sad Lovers and Giants, and I thought, oh, my God, and then the Chameleons, and then, like you said, the Yeah, Chameleons
1: great. are great. And
0: then yeah. and there's another one called The Sound, um, who uh, did a and and you know there's all these other bands and and actually you you were just mentioned about your dad going to the record library well we had one that you paid 5 pound a a year to go to the record library but you could get vinyl records home tapings killer music that's right but you yeah. could um you you know you, yeah, you could just take four records out at a time and obviously supposed yes. you know, to take them back. But you would just, just do this kind of thing all the time with all these TDK, D, uh, TDK D90 cassettes with these albums. That's on right, yeah. Religiously <laughs> recorded and then sort of... Yeah, absolutely. on. And just kind of try to consume as much as possible. But there was a huge amount that I missed completely, in which I've... <laughs> discovered later, only thirty years. But yeah, the bullshit yeah. was one of those ones which were like, God, this is yeah. amazing. Is that a song called "Is It Sunday Something"? Isn't
1: it? Yeah, Sunday morning. Yeah, that was Sunday. the. Yeah, I mean, it was actually. I mean, you know, a, a very, very kind of poppy song with a very dark, you know, sort of dark lyrical content to it. You know, it was, you know, something that was very, very laid back. I mean, they, they were they were a strange band because they, they, you know, they never really kind of got the. I mean, they only made three albums whether the first one was a mini album wasn't it um and then they made friends which was the one that kind of blew up because it had sunday morning on it and and away was the other big single on there um, and then one more album after that, and I think they—I think they started making another album, and then kind of got dropped by by beggars. So it was, um, yeah, um, and sort of almost at the, at the almost at the, the sort of peak of their career, you know, when they were really starting to headline quite big shows. So I can remember them playing some. The last gig that I went to of theirs was, uh, oh, now where was it? Uh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm trying to think what the venue was. It, 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 it was one of the bigger, kind of old, you know, theatre type venues, and I'm, I can't, can't really can't place where it was. It, but it was something that was almost, um, almost forum sized, you know. Right. Um And, and they the were the kind of headlining them. this on their own. All, all of a sudden, they'd kind of got to that kind of level. Whereas before, they'd been like, you know, surprise support for all about Eve or something like that you know and you know to my mind they always blew all about Eve away you know it was just <laughs> it was just you know I, I, I can remember get, going to that all about Eve concert and they hadn't announced who the support were and then the Bolshei came on and I was absolutely over the moon and I just thought I'm, I'm, I'm happy to just go home at the end of their set really you know I don't re- don't really want to listen to all about Eve now <laughs> um, but but yeah yeah I, yeah I can remember them playing some of the the new songs from from the new album that kind of got shelved um, which yeah I mean I can I, you know I can still remember one or two of them which is bizarre isn't it because that was you know very yeah that was late 80s (laughs) yeah Yeah, yeah.
0: so then how did you sort of get you know because then you sort of enter you know you were talking about bands but then in the early 90s you have a bit of a break don't you
1: yes um, well actually yeah I mean it was kind of late 80s actually Um, and what I did then was I actually started working in studios um, so I got a job um, back up in London um, at one of the very, very big studios there. So I got a job as a tape op, um and uh, went to work at uh, Townhouse Studios, which, uh, as it was at the time, was um, owned by Virgin. So at the time when Virgin still owned their music, the um, wing, if you like. So it was still, still yes. Richard Branson that owned it all. Um, and they had um, some of the best top-flight studios in London. And I just kinda of, you know, i I I decided that I wanted to go into studio work and I um yeah, just sent a you know I can't remember how many it was. It was like a hundred hundred odd letters out to all the big studios around London and um I think out of all of those I I maybe got ten replies and out of out of those ten replies I got one interview. Wow. Um and, and but it was at this amazing studio so and, and I got the job there as a as a tape op um assistant engineer. Um and yeah well i mean worked with some some very, very big pop stars, and just got got into that that kind of whole engineering production thing, which is still really i mean you know it's mainly what I do, actually it's still mainly what i do yeah. um so um yes, you know was there it was, any was in a fantastic in-
0: you worked with or worked kind of under so to speak
1: uh yeah, so um particular producers um someone that I worked with. I mean, there, there were a lot of, of, of very different people, obviously, that went through somewhere like that. Um, uh, the main studio was was a very expensive room, so it tended to be a lot of the kind of top-flight people. Yeah. Um, so it was the sort of place where um, you know Trevor Horn would go if he couldn't get into Psalm, if he couldn't get into his own studio. Right. He would go there instead. So I was lucky enough to work with Trevor Horn a few times. Um, uh, there were other people that I tended to work with I I sort of tended to gravitate towards their um, slightly cheaper studio, which none of the other assistants ever wanted to go to um, because it it wasn't in the nice kind of glitzy shepherd's bush complex um, with all the, with all the big fancy expensive desks. It was, um, It was down in Battersea on its own um, and it had been acquired by Virgin. It was called Townhouse 3 and it had been acquired by Virgin. Um, And Funnily enough, the the Bolshoi Friends album, what had been recorded there, I mean, I I kind of didn't really realise that at the time when I I first went down there and then came came across a whole load of tapes in the tape store. And like, wow, there's a load load of outtakes here I can listen to in my spare time. Um, But uh, And it had been... um, They'd, they'd bought it from The Who, actually. Right. So it had been The yeah. Who's Ramport Studios where, where um, Quadrophenia had been recorded. So it had like a lot of kind of history about it. And it kind of, it was a bit funky. It was right in the middle of a very rough housing estate, um, which is why I'd, I, I think a lot of people didn't like going down there. But I loved working there because it was a slightly cheaper room. And in actual fact, what you found people doing was booking the room to do um, quite lengthy album recordings you know right. so sort of for months at a time and um, so you'd you know they could afford to do that there whereas, whereas the bigger rooms people would tend to go in there for a few days to do the mix because I mean you know even back in 1989 I think those rooms cost to hire those rooms cost you know back in that in those days it was around about eighteen hundred pounds a day for the for the top flight rooms, which like in today's money is about four and a half grand for a day in the studio, you know, it's just ridiculous. Yes. But that was what people were having to pay, wasn't it? You know, and so they would go to those rooms to to mix because it was terribly expensive. Either that or they had to be, you know, very big pop stars to be able to afford to just kind of go there and record. Um whereas this place was, you know, it was a there was a great studio. It had a a really lovely old neve desk and it had an amazing live room that but it was you know basically you could you could get the entire band in there and isolate everybody properly and it you know it was impossible to get a bad drum sound in there kind of place you know right um, yes. um and it was all just some somewhere that was a happy accident and it, and so there i worked on a with a with a lot of different people i mean so that included people like um adrian sherwood i worked with a lot um, yeah on new sound yeah so that kind of got me into into that kind of side of things a little bit more because i really appreciated that um I, I loved working with adrian because he was such a character um yes. you know he was and he, he was yeah he would he would basically always get get like all the all the rooms for an absolute steal he would wait until friday night um and then phone up the studio managers and, and say have you got any rooms for you and of course they'd be desperate to sell the studio time so he would get them for next to nothing because they didn't want their room sitting en- empty over the weekend yes. and then he would work for 48 hours straight over the weekend you know um so he was he was someone that was quite inspirational um and then uh, the, another producer i did a lot of work with down there was Ter- um he was Musical director is a guy called Pete Glenister, right? Um, and he produced a, a number of different albums. um One of the big ones that I worked on with him was one of the Alison Maya albums, right? Um, um, which was really good he'd, he'd worked a lot with Kirsty McCall as well um, so you know we used to get he you know you'd regularly get Kirsty McCall in to do backing vocals for various different projects um,
0: okay. yeah
1: so he was he was someone else that I worked with a lot but there were a lot of different people I mean you know with, within working at, at Virgin I was you know I was able to work with Prince for a day you know I mean which was amazing you know that was just like whoa you know this is a proper big pop star you know um, and so what was um, what was
0: like when you saw him sort of working? Well, for- it was
1: kind of at the it, yeah, I mean you, you kind of didn't really. Um I mean it was it was at the height of his paranoia, really, I I guess, you know. So he was doing gigs in, in Wembley at the time. So he was doing gigs in the evening, and then he would come into the studio after the gigs, you know, and basically work all the way through the night. And you never knew what he was going to do. Um, so you'd have to set up the whole studio as though he might want to record any instrument at all. So that would be, you had to set up the drum kit with all the microphones, all the guitar amps with all the microphones. Um, and then you'd have vocal mic set up if you wanted to get any of his backing singers in. You'd also hang a mic over the mixing desk for him to sing into right. because he, he would basically just engineer himself.
0: Um, and, he,
1: and he and he liked to just be left alone, um, and so it was. You know, it was one of those things where you'd set it all up and you'd, you'd get it all set up for him, and you know, you didn't have that much contact with him because he would go, "Okay, right, fine. Um, why don't you go and watch some TV or something?" And he would just kind of get on with it. Um, <laughs> you know, so you just you yes. just he only kind of called you if he had a problem. Um, but amazingly, in that situation, he was he was a very different person. I mean, it was at the height of his parano- paranoia after. You know, he would be driven around in two limousines in case one broke down. You know, they would two limousines would, would drive around following each other around London. You know, so that it'd be these two limousines that would pull up very late at night. You know, you'd been there all day setting everything up. And it'd be one o'clock in the morning when he arrived. And then he would just work all the way through the night. Um, and he didn't think anything of calling his musicians up that had no, also done I, the gig I, but, with him. Yeah, it's and, it's and, quite a know, famous, story, the they're kind of famous yeah.
0: story, isn't it, really?
1: Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, but ask- actually it, within that kind of studio environment he was incredibly respectful and i think it was he was quite, he was quiet he was very 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 respectful you know he left the, the you know the minders all went home they weren't hanging around that you know it was just yeah i'm i'm now in a creative space making music and that's what i'm doing and you know all these people here mm-hmm. there to help me are kind of my equals you know he didn't talk down to anybody it was it was very um i'm sure he was more demanding of his own staff probably when he was in paisley park i mean i know I've heard stories about Susan Rogers getting, you know, to the end of her tether with him, basically, because she was just just on, on call all the time, wasn't she, as, a, as, his, as his engineer, you know? Yes. Um, and yeah. I think the people didn't didn't last a long time with him, you know. They kind of burned out quite quickly because it was <laughs> that whole twenty four seven. You know, you could you could manage doing a couple of years with him. Um, yeah, you know. It was probably hard um, to say
0: no, wouldn't it? But then you know, you probably think three in the morning, thinking I really don't want to come to the studio
1: exactly i mean they, you know everybody just has their cutoff point don't they with different things so yeah um so but that, yeah, was I mean, that was an interesting period
0: because you'd had sign of the times then you had love sexy and then i think there that's was, right there was batman then graffiti bridge and that was that point yeah. where i used to go and see him i used to, i loved all the indie shows but i did go and see prince three times around yeah. that point A different yeah. kind of when he was doing different tours that wasn't the same tour and um it was mesmerizing but then there was that point where actually the next album came out and it was a bit like actually i'm i'm not sort of quite i think graffiti bridge was a bit hit and miss and then after that was it was just endless and i just yeah
1: yeah yeah i think I, i think i probably felt the same so yeah i mean it was the love sexy tour that he was doing um you know it was those shows that he was doing when when he came into into townhouse to record um yeah it was it was a slightly bizarre situation but yeah i mean you know those, those were some of the um sort of regular people that i that i kind of worked with i mean of Prince was a kind of special one off but there were there were all sorts of people i mean you know um, yeah you know managed to work with the Fall at various different points again one of those collaborations with adrian sherwood you know which was that was that was quite something oh, was working with
0: did one with cold cut didn't he as well that's
1: right yeah and it and that was a that was a really interesting experience was kind of you know they, they were working i can't think who their other producer was at the time but they were working they had two rooms in townhouse books and they were recording their kind of more conventional stuff and then running down to this other room where adrian was with all his samplers and and making beats and you know Marky e. Smith was just loving it actually you know he was really he was really really into into that kind of you know sort of yeah sort of formative time of of you know sort of starting to blend electronic music with, with that indie sound, you know. Because
0: in the 80s, there'd been this guy called Morgan Khan who'd done a series called Street Sounds or some electro... That's right, yeah. And the compilations, which were absolutely brilliant because it was just a compilation rather than an album by one artist. And he thought, oh That's no, it. They, they've got one good song and the rest are terrible. Yeah. But these were just brilliant compilations. And I do remember yeah. Marky Smith saying that he quite liked a few of those kind of artists who, well, you know, John Peel used to play... Like T La Rock or early Public Enemy and LL Kill J and and That's right, Roxage, yeah. Roxanne Chante and yeah. Yeah, yeah, So it was all very excited. I remember, you know,
1: yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, I think I remember him saying something about like really liking S Express and Bomb the Bass even at the time, you know, which was like, you know, you you, know, you, you wouldn't have thought that, but he, he thought they were brilliant, you know. He, he liked some of that, even very commercial kind of stuff, which was yes. yeah, interesting. But it was, but it was, it was an interesting time. I mean, you know. Um, bands were starting to experiment with that I, I guess it was because of the whole kind of acid house thing starting to kind of cross over into an, an ecstasy basically you know it was just starting to cross over into the indie scene wasn't it and yes. and and stuff was becoming a lot you know things were they were starting to embrace the beats a little bit more so you had bands like that petrol I mean, yeah i can remember again working with that that petrol emotion and it was at, at that cusp of that time when they went from being very kind of shoegazy you know indie into just being almost like a dance act overnight, or <laughs> you know, and they were just yeah, experimenting well they did that with song, stuff. The-
0: Big decision, didn't they? Which was just, yeah. brilliant. and they had that rap and Steve Mack, who was the lead singer from America, with the guys from the Undertones. You know, I thought they they had really done a great album. You know, great yeah, couple did, of singles yeah. and yeah. quite a few good albums. But um, yes, it was it was quite something. But yeah, Ecstasy was huge because I think all those indie bands that I loved by '87 they'd got quite a, quite tired with it, and then mm. there was a whole new wave of sixteen to eighteen year olds who wanted their own soundtrack an ecstasy kind of gave them that kind of oh let's listen to i mean there were bands like primal screams soup dragons and happy mondays who all managed to sort of somehow drop the indie bit and become much more dance orientated with
1: absolutely and
0: and they did really well with it but other bands who were slightly coming along at that point it was all like the party was over ish Mm. but but they did all right like sundays and then the early years of carter the unstoppable sex machine and you had my bloody valentine and then then we had this seattle grunge scene that sort of appeared as well so so that's things right. changed quite quickly. But I think any band who was kind of a jingly-jangly band from the 83, 84 period had pretty well just had enough of it by
1: then. Yeah, that's it, yeah. So
0: it was a very tricky yeah, absolutely. one. So then, so then being in the studio and being probably, probably quite young still and being amazed with all this excitement, how did you then sort of get into the band?
1: Um, that was just, I mean, you know, I guess that's... That was one of those things that was an interesting kind of chain of events i guess um i mean i've often kind of looked at what i've you know what i've done in my music career as being exploit i suppose exploiting opportunities at the right time as they came along you know and it's the way of actually having any kind of longevity in this career i i suppose you know is to you know look for the opportunities when they come along um so that was, um, there was a, yeah, my time at, at Virgin kind of came to an end, um, because I mean, you know, long story short, I, I was also you know, involved with doing some work with, um, uh, Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music as his own studio, right. Um, the gallery, um, which is where the Rosetta Stone album, the Eye for the main chance was recorded. Um, And, um, yeah, I mean, the the whole reason why I ended up kind of going to work there was because, you know, again, it was kind of a a desire to make music kind of wanting to push me onto the other side of the glass a little bit, as well as being in front of the desk. You know, I I wanted to kind of combine the two. And again, it was it, it was that kind of, you know, late 80s, very early 90s point of sort of. Hot music becoming exciting because of the acid house explosion and because of also because of bands like Soul to Soul and um, you know the, uh, yeah I mean essentially the, the the short of it was that um, I had a friend who was the engineer at his studio um, I used to go down and visit him quite a lot as well he would you know come and he wouldn't come and see me at Virgin so much because my clients were far more high powered but I used to quite like going down to that studio there so it was in, in Surrey in Chertsey in Surrey and it was not far away from we we shared a house basically you know in, in West London, so he would go down down to Surrey and I would go into into west london every day um and we both were essentially doing the same job and we 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 started writing some songs together um and he was working at Phil's Studio as his engineer and and he you know we we started mucking around doing some songs and and Phil became very interested in signing us as a band you know so it was quite quite sort of poppy stuff um uh quite electronic um uh and as a result, he kind of, you know, Phil basically took me on as another engineer there, you know, so that basically I wouldn't have to go and work all hours of the day, seven days a week at, at Virgin, and I could concentrate on, on being in this band that he had signed, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, the, the short of that one was that, you know, I don't think they really knew what to do with us. Um, Phil had started his own label up, Expression Records, um, which was what the first Rosetta album came out on. Um, and he was largely kind of, he wasn't ter- being terribly business minded about it at the time. I mean, he was, he was using it as an outlet for, for some of his solo ventures, which was, was fine, but he he had a reasonable amount of, um, people that he kind of, you know, knew from within the business that were like, oh, well, I've got a, a great album that I've made, you know, maybe you could release this for me and you know, I can remember him kind of, you know, this is back in the days of pressing up masses of vinyl and kind of getting it in, you know, there'd be like boxes of this unsold vinyl in his studio you know so i think he was in in quite a precarious state financially really um (laughs) so they didn't have an awful lot of money and i think they kind of they kind of came to the realization they didn't really know what to do with us because we would probably need quite a lot more promotion um and you know we weren't a gigging band or anything like that and you know i think they kind of felt out out of their depth with us. So you know I still listen to listen back to it now It's actually we, we wrote some great pop songs back then <laughs> you know it's a, a shame it never came out um but as a as a result of of us working there and their the, him having his kind of label there um obviously people would back in the, you know that's back in the days when people would send their demo tapes to labels wouldn't they you know that's yeah. how you got <laughs> that's how you got noticed um and one day um a rosetta stone vinyl 12 inch turned up in the um it turned up in the office there um and um yeah it was the it was the um it was the chapter reverse verse uh, 12 inch actually so they'd released that that one themselves um and they yeah the, the label manager kind of knew that i was into all that kind of stuff and had basically you know almost brought me into a and a little bit and said oh you know have a listen to this i mean you know she kind of knew her prog rock and things like that and um, have a listen to this you know the, the, this band have sent this in you know they might be quite interesting and handed it to me um and what i <laughs> Again, an interesting kind of crossover that happened was back to back to my Virgin days was when I was still at Virgin, I did a a mixing session with the mission. where I was just the assistant on the on the project and I'd requested to do it because I knew the mission were coming in you know I was like oh yeah, yeah. I've got I've got I've got I've got to be on that session please please put me on that session so it was Tim Palmer and it was oh um, Tim
0: cuz I've done an interview with Tim
1: yeah so it was Tim Palmer and and they were doing a um a 12 inch mix of deliverance basically so it was you I know see. 1990 yeah exactly um which I ended up playing the guitar on um, so I've got a guitar credit on that on that Sorcerer's mix, yeah. So that was my first kind of big, big guitar credit. You know, everything else had been like engineering credits or whatever up until that point that I'd started to amass. But, you know, this was, yeah, additional noise guitar by Paul Young. and It, it was just because Wayne was trying to muck around with different he wanted to add some extra stuff to it basically so we you know we so we, we'd cut in a load of samples and he'd be kind of did some some extra kind of verse things and this is back in the day of, of when you had to cut a 12 inch together on the tape you know you'd yeah. have to you know run extra stuff in and, and basically cut a, an extended mix together on a tape machine um and he yeah he just asked me to play some guitar on it um because he had been mucking around with stuff and nothing was really working and he said oh you know really want want something that's kind of got that whammy bar stuff on it and i was like oh yeah i can i can do that i'll, I'll run home and get me to my guitar quickly and bring it back and he he had a go at it and he said oh you you have a go and they just took a couple of random takes and that was it and it ended up all over it which i was you know i was absolutely over the moon about you know being a being a mission fan i was like oh wow you know something else but what i do remember at the time was wayne talking about talking to tim about um the fact that rosetta stone previous to that time had actually asked him if he would produce that that first e p that they did themselves and he and he was he was sort of talking them up, you know he was saying oh you know they were you know they were saying, oh, you know what they like, and he said oh, you know they're good they're you know they're kind of like the sisters but um but good sisters you know kind of when when you know when I was in the band um sort of all the I don't think he really rated all the kind of uh floodland kind of you know but he was like yeah it was you know this sounded you know it sounded quite a lot like the kind of first and last norway sisters, you know um and that, it, that, for some reason, I remembered that. So when this when this twelve inch turned up in in the Expression Records office, I was you know like, oh right, okay. Well, Wayne Hussey have recommended has, has recommended this band. He was quite up for doing the production, but couldn't couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I. I um, <laughs> I said, yeah, you know, you, you really should get a band like this on the label because this could re- be really, really good for you. You know, I mean, this this band have obviously got a following. They've, you know, they're they're obviously well known. You know, they they could just need that little kind of push over into mass distribution and you know being able to fund doing an album. Um, and so, you know, essentially, I kind of a and it and got it signed. Um, you know, went to went to see them at a gig. Um, they, so they were playing at. Um, university of london union i think um went to see them at that gig um and yeah the the rest was kind of history i mean essentially basically the the proviso was that i would get to co-produce their album you know i said yeah and and nobody else wanted to touch them as well because i mean at this point it was it was early 90s as as you say the music scene had moved on you know goth bands actually weren't the thing at the time you know
0: and also they'd had their heyday because i think with the they
1: absolutely had
0: and I know with the mission, because I've done uh, I've done an interview with Wayne and also Andy, who was in, I think it's Andy with All About Eve, but he also was in the mission as well. And I think they were really struggling because they'd hit that peak and then it was like, it was going and it was a bit like, COD. That's be, right. Yeah. It, it was a real, and That's also right, there was it's a awesome. lot of, and the and the. There was a lot of drugs that had been getting yes. consumed, so there was a lot of kind of deluded kind of, hello.
1: <laughs> yes, and no, exactly. I mean, it was very much like that. Whereas, I mean, you know, what was, what was very interesting about to go and see this band was, you know, that they actually had quite a lot of the energy to do with that, and they actually had this really, really loyal sort of strong following, you know, so, I mean, you know, they were doing reasonable-sized gigs at that point, um, which was yeah you know and there, a lot of people were turning up to see them and they they, they had you know followers who were you know following bands around you know, I, I think that was you know that was in in the early 90s so you could still claim unemployment for quite lengthy periods of time couldn't you and people yes. kind of used to just do that as a thing didn't they they used to follow bands you know and um yeah, so I, I was quite impressed by that. And yeah, I, I, you know, a little bit of nostalgia on my part, I suppose, but I thought well, actually it would be great fun to produce this album for, with them, you know, Um, so it essentially got them signed. Nobody, no other record companies would touch them, you know, because they were a goth, a goth band. But I think I managed to kind of talk them up um, and, uh, you know, I think they did become one of the better, you know, best-selling acts that Phil had on that label at that time. It possibly did save the label for a little bit because, you know, because we 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 made it for an absolute absolute shoestring. We made it in his studio, you know. Um, yeah, you know, there were no no huge costs for the for the entire thing. We made it very very quickly. And this um, is the one,
0: and, an eye for the main chance on
1: That's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, I didn't I didn't intend on on ending up in the band at all. Once again, I, and it would, you know, it came back to that mission thing again of they wanted, you know, I kind of produced it to have a heavier sound, a bit more like the mission where, you know, their earlier stuff had been a bit more kind of jangly and a bit more kind of sisters, um, much, much faster paced sisters, I guess. Um, and sort of cleaner guitar tones and a lot riffier and everything like that. And, I, you know, I'd, I guess my influence had been to put a lot, bigger heavier guitars on it a lot bigger bigger heavier mission type sound on it and and they just asked me oh you know can you do some of that guitar on a couple of tracks like you'd done on on deliverance you know yes and you
0: did a classic on there didn't you the when the <laughs> levy breaks
1: that's right yeah we did well that was a b-side actually so that that came out on the, it was a, an extra extra track on the on the cd um it wasn't on the vinyl album actually um so it wasn't originally intended um as part of the vinyl album but we did do when the levy breaks um as as a a b-side basically which was a lot of fun um you that know we had a imagine. lot of fun making that um especially sort of trying to do program drums to sound like John Bonham. We, we you know, we, 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 wheeled out that we basically just piped the pipe, the, the drum machine through a massive, great big speaker at, at one end of a, a, you know, very, very big room that was in, it wasn't a studio room at all. And I think we had to get down there very early in the morning. So we weren't going to annoy anybody, you know, apart from the neighbors and and, and record this, you know, monstrous sounding drum machine, um, which I, I found out so many years, years later was kind of what they, what they did in the early days of the doctor to um get that to have any kind of you know um you know real real punch to it i, I think in the, the early sisters recordings they'd tried doing that i think even during um first and last and always they he tried doing that because i think that you know they were the, the i think one of the things that was always kind of impressive about the, the the sort of drum machine bands was just how massive it sounded through an enormous pa you know so it was that live experience of having the, you know, the, the sort of drum machine bands was, it just sounded so much bigger <laughs> through a massive PA, you know, it just had that sort of relentless quality to it, you know? Um, so yes. yeah, it was kind of fun doing that. Um, and, and And sort of difficult in some ways to replicate that when you recorded it. It's like when you listen to those early sisters records, they actually sound a bit, thin don't they and weedy and you know and that kind of wasn't almost wasn't what they were going for really were they? <laughs> you know they I know were, they were going... but there
0: was the, there was a classic they did didn't it? with um Jim Steinman produced one of their singles oh as well. yes
1: oh, yeah that's right yeah 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 I mean that was uh, yeah hey, yeah the um this corrosion wasn't it yeah so, yeah so that was yeah ridiculously over the top so i mean yeah i mean you know all of that time had kind of been and funnily enough i mean even around the time that the rosetta were, were really starting to to blow up quite big um you know sisters had sort of took another turn and became a lot rockier you know so that was around the time of the vision thing album you know when um it looked like they would disappeared again for a while and then and then they kind of came back with you know tony james and and actually Tim Brissonneau as well, wasn't it? You know, from All About Eve and uh, yeah.
0: Yes. And, and the
1: kind of much rockier kind of sound, which you know, I, don't, I don't think I liked so much actually. But again, it was, yeah, yeah, it was something that we'd, we'd sort of taken a little bit of that on board with Rosetta as well. And, you know, it was it just, I mean, me joining the band was just, it was just an invitation initially um, because we'd made this enormous great big wall of sound on the Eye for the Main Chance album, um, that they just felt like they couldn't go out and do it live, you know? And they, they basically just invited me me on the on the first tour they did from the for the first single so they leave me for dead single um yes with, um they just invited me to come along and play play guitar for the tour you know which i was like yeah that'll be fun you know i'm not giving up what i'm doing in the studio or anything like that i'll just go go along and do a short tour for for this and it'll be it'll be a laugh and um and then uh, you know sort of slowly but surely got assimilated into the band for a little bit you know so then, so then spent a couple of years. and it really only lasted a couple of years um uh, and yeah, I mean, and and so then we went on to to make probably the the bigger selling singles. Um, so we went on to do Adrenaline and then The Witch, which I think was the one that suddenly you know, which was a cover cover of the old Rattles song. Um, which was a bizarre kind of cover that we did. Nobody nobody really remembers the old song, but it was something that Paul had, the other Paul had, had sort of heard and thought it was brilliant and it would be great to do it. And it, he 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 had a, an interesting sense of. The sense of the slightly absurd, actually, and I think that was some of the some of the reason why Rosetta kind of worked. You know what I mean? Was essentially that you know it had a kind of pop sensibility about it, and it was it was like you know there was a, a bit of a sense of the absurd. It was like you know it didn't it didn't actually take itself too seriously although everybody probably thought that we did you know and all the goths probably thought that we took ourselves terribly seriously it was kind of um and paul paul did you know he did take it seriously he took it very seriously but at the same time it was it was not a kind of uh, a sort of rock and roll lifestyle he was after it was it was you know wanting to write some catchy tunes actually you know that was that was what he liked doing at that time um and so yeah and I think I think that was I think the witch was probably the, the the bigger single that we had out of everything really. Um, that one went. Uh, and we and we had a video made of that. Um, which we did, again we did that on a real shoestring. I think we made it for two hundred pounds and with one guy with a Super Eight camera.
0: Right. And w- <laughs>
1: Went into an old church in Warrington and and <laughs> managed to blag <laughs> blag the use for an old church in Warrington and, um, uh, yeah. And stuck our smoke machines in there and kind of you know filmed it in a day and, and cut it all together very cheaply and, and i can remember then phoning up the um uh actually the label the expression phoning up the 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 chart show um and saying you know will you play the video we'll send you the video so that's back in the days of the chart show being on on saturday mornings you know playing all the videos and they would do the indie chart wouldn't they you know they yeah. do the rundown of the indie chart and of course, you know Rosetta Stone was like that. people didn't want to know about. I mean, we were regularly getting in the indie chart. That was the thing, you know. is we were, we were quite often going in the indie chart higher up than some of the real champion darlings of the front cover of the enemy. You know, re- release a record and it would chart much higher. Um, uh, but yes, um, you know, yeah, they said, oh, you know, well, we we only, only do a kind of top top ten rundown of the of the indie. Thing. so there's there's no chance that it will get into the top 10 in week of release of course it did um and they, <laughs> and they ended up having to play a bit of it because they had to play a bit of every video that was in there so um so that was that was a quite a funny thing really um and and yeah but that that, that really only lasted I guess through I mean it was really just a couple of years so it was kind of yeah 91 92 mm-hmm. um so, yeah. was was my time in that band and then sort of sort of early 93 Um, I left really. Um, um, and I think some of that was, was because I, I still liked doing the studio work. Um, so, um, I think, I think Paul wanted me to be a lot more committed to the, to the band, you know, I think that was the thing. Um, and they were based up in Liverpool and I was still living down on the South coast and, you know, I would go up there and stay for extended periods of time. And I became very, very fond of Liverpool, made a lot of friends there. Um, but it was, um, it was kind of, it seemed a kind of strange thing to do because i mean you know the reality the reality of being in that band was i mean like like all indie bands at the time really in the early 90s nobody was making any money from it you know we we made some money at our gigs from selling t-shirts usually and yeah that and that would usually just go back into financing the band being on the road for the next tour you know we, we didn't ever take any money out of the band personally um so it never it never made any real money you know um and it costs money to make records, and so you know you 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 never made that money back. Do you know what I mean? You know, or, or made very little of it back. So I mean, well, you know, I the, think, the reality yeah. of, reality of it was that people just signed on the dole, you know, yes. um, and that was it. People were just on the dole for extended periods of time. Of course, in Liverpool, that was terribly easy to do in the early nineties because you know they had a you know terrible unemployment problem. It was you know they had a militant labour council as well didn't they so i mean there was n- literally no work in liverpool or, or any work there was people were just just doing as as cashing hand jobs you know which you could do back then so um so that was the reality of, of, of life in the band in in the early 90s was it was you know they, those guys were on the dole um you know the, the and uh yeah and, and I, I i don't know that i really i wasn't really terribly comfortable with that you know it was um It it kind of wasn't really my life, I think. Yes,
0: absolutely. Well, it's interesting because in the early 80s, which is kind of where a lot of the bands I've interviewed came from, I mean, they did the whole sort of unemployment, but there was also things like the Job Seekers Allowance or the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which gave people... That's right to sort of become a self-employed whatever as but you've mm. got, got yourself taken off the dole and the statistics I suppose and in that mm. time you know a lot of people did sort of form those bands or do those creative things and then right. and then sort of you know a lot of bands have that three to five year narrative I mean, mm. where they get you know they have that one year the honeymoon period the John Peel play a John Peel session the first album and you know and there was you know like every town and city has has a sort of alternative night and venue so you know bands could right. you know have that little tour you know so you play in that kind of almost fantasy of being in a in a band but then it was that thing of like you said the you know the album comes out you're on the front of the nme you 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 know it's all looking good but you're totally broke and and then yeah. the second album you know you're broke and you've already hate each other and then you, yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: i mean, and that was kind of where we were going i mean you know it was um, yeah I mean, you know the thing is that you know Paul and Carl had had worked together for a long time previously. I kind of came into it, helped them make their record you know helped make help them make a couple couple more records by which time the relationships had changed because i I was actually in the band rather than being a kind of external force you know so i was kind of having to listen to a lot more of paul's ideas i guess um which i probably didn't like so much um although i liked some of them yeah um, and, you know i mean we got on fine and um you know and we yeah i mean th- th- there was definitely a kind of a, a sort of turning point at which i mean strangely i, I think i, I brought a, a copy of pretty hate machine up to liverpool with me you know, um, uh, and. And I mean, you know, Paul had, had just suddenly went over overnight from listening only to first and last and always, which was like li- literally the only record he would listen to, you know, and just kind of analyze it and things like that. that, was, that was, it was constantly on his turntable. It was like that just kind of came off and Pretty Hate Machine went on and that was it. You know, he was just like, no, that's that's totally the direction the Rosetta are going in, which I was I was absolutely thrilled and over the moon with. But I, I couldn't quite believe that that's what he wanted to do, you know, um, and I think he at that point he he became... You know there we had managed to invest some little bits of money back into um some you know some i, I guess at the time um fairly fairly early kind of sequencing equipment and stuff like that um and he'd, he'd, he'd managed to buy a sampler and things like that and all the, so all of the gear that i'd been using in the studios you know um and i think he kind of felt like he he wanted to do more of it himself all of a sudden do you know what i mean he, he he wanted to do that and of course it was in a way that was kind of treading on my toes a little bit because that was my area of expertise you know and it never it didn't ever manifest itself like that it was more the fact that he kind of thought i wasn't terribly committed to the band because i was going off and working in studios still you know i, I kind of went back to doing that I, I never never moved to liverpool and went on the dole you know that was a yeah yeah <laughs> you know so that i could be a full-time member of the band and, and as you say i i think it had probably had its real you know, it had had its moment actually by then, I think. I think everything that kind of came after that, and there were a few albums that came after that, but you know, um, everything that came after that didn't ever really kind of get that level of sort of commercial success, I don't think. I mean, you know, they, they ended up doing deals with Cleopatra in, in the States um, to get things released. Um, and yeah, it went went down more of the route that he's kind of continued in, um, which is which is fair play. So Some of it is very, very good. Um, but yeah, it would. Yeah, it was more a kind of clash of personalities. I think actually, really, you know, he was like, you know, well, you're just in the band because you like being in the band, and I was like, mm, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes. you're not really, con- you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was strange. I, I'm, you know, I'm still not entirely sure what happened, but I, th- I think it was just really more that, um, you know. I hadn't properly committed to it and I think he wanted me to properly commit to it and I'd I'd sort of, you know, yeah, I was happy to go along with it and and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed it for a period of time Um, and you know and then there there just kind of became a time where i thought you know what i I actually just want to start getting back into the studio and recording some other bands again do you know what i mean i actually enjoy being in the studio working with some other people and being on that side of the desk again i'm sort of missing that yeah Um, well it's interesting
0: because you know you mentioned tim Palmer. there was another guy i did an interview with mark saunders who sort of started in the early 80s and had an amazing run of you know, work that he did for decades, mm. and I think relocated to America for a, for a period of time as well. But you know, his CV is is kind of awesome as well. And again, I think a lot of people start as musicians, thinking it's all right, but we're not going anywhere with this band. And yeah. then it's like, oh, I might become a producer or an engineer. Yeah. Like, oh, actually, yeah. it's a bit more fun, so I might stick with that. So, um, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's how how I've always kind of tended to look at it. Actually, really, So you know, that was. That's always what I've done, really. Is you know far more than than wanting to get up and on stage and play the guitar. To be honest with you, you know I've I've sort of enjoyed doing that, but that isn't that isn't something that I've really wanted to do a lot of. I mean, you know I've um, you know ended up playing on on other people's records since or or whatever. Um, but yeah you know sort of being in the studio and, and and doing the you know being being behind the desk is actually something that I, I enjoy doing a lot more you know, and I, so, you know and I so. found and I found it just opens opens your eyes to just so many other different sorts of music as well i mean you know I think around about the time that I was still you know still in Rosetta the kind of you know last year of it or something, started doing a lot more work in in sort of smaller studios with with some of these kind of you know fledgling indie bands that were that were coming up at the time you know that had been more influenced by you know so by that time it was it was people that had been more influenced by you know smashing pumpkins and and some of the us kind of scene you know pixies all that kind of stuff um and yeah I did some really interesting work with some very interesting bands and you know work with a, a band called flinch um who um yeah is they've they you know since turned into various different iterations and they're now the um the the front woman is is her name is is Grog, and their 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 band is Die So Fluid now, which is you know sort of big kind of almost goth metal band. Funnily enough, you know, <laughs> whereas uh, you know back then it was you know she was um yeah she was an awesome bass player, guitarist, and you know back then I remember being you know very very influenced by people like Kim Deal. You know she was a you know brilliant vocalist and and great bass player, and you know had a, a lot of energy about them. And suddenly it was like oh you know I'm listening to some great music that these these young bands are making. You know. I'm, 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 you know, really enjoying being around these different people again. You know.
0: Yes, but then you also get into—is it DJing and also starting a label?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, you know, again, you know, that was—it it was just a just a weird kind of again just a just a funny kind of set of circumstances that that ended up happening I mean I went went again back to work in Phil's studio for a while um working on a on a lot of um Latin American stuff actually he was doing a lot of productions of Latin American you know rock music rock bands and stuff like that so I was doing a lot of work with him again for a bit um and then as a result of that I ended up Going and working on um, in another studio that was back in Sep- Shepherd's Bush again, um, you know, working with again a real variety of different people, um, and then you know doing little bits and pieces of work at um, at the Strong Room, um, which is is now a kind of really famous studio, but at the time it was like it had two rooms there, and it was actually really unpopular because it was in in East London, you know, it was sort of, it was in Shoreditch. You know, right. and there was nothing in Shoreditch then, which is um, difficult to believe nowadays, isn't it? But there was <laughs> yes. there was nothing in Shoreditch then. I mean, basically, if you went out at the week, you know, if you were in the studio at the weekend, you couldn't couldn't get anything to eat because everything was shut. You know, you'd, you'd have to walk all the way to Brick Lane to go and buy a bagel or or a curry or something like that, which was you know quite a way off. But but that whole kind of old street Shoreditch area was was desolate. You know, there was nothing there at all. But at the, you know, especially at the weekend, because it was just the it was the you know still the remains of the old rag trade basically um but what there was um around there was there were there were uh, because properties and, and rents were incredibly cheap there um strong room had set up there I, I ended up doing some um some work there just a bit of freelance work there and then they kind of you know hooked me up with um the beat masters who had their studio there Yes. they used to rent a little upstairs room there and a bunch of different people producers had their studios actually within their kind of complex so before they turned it into this big big, amazing studio complex they used to rent out these little rooms. Um, Orbital had their room there as well you know so you kind of found myself sort of more in that kind of scene and it, it just began it was just a random call one day of, of, of someone asking someone at, at Strongroom did they know someone who could come in and do a lot of kind of, you know, sort of donkey work style programming because he, he was, you know, big up big up a coming dance producer and he basically had more work than he could, you know, than he could do himself, but he didn't want to turn any of it away because it was all paying quite good money remixing and stuff like that. I said, yeah, all right, fine. Sure. I'll go, I'll go along and do that. And he, um, um, yeah, that, uh, yes, that was, that was more how I kind of got into the dance music, um, sort of properly. Um, and you know making yeah doing a lot of kind of remixes um a lot of stuff that was very you know very very much um you know quite commercial but very kind of camp stuff that was very well received on the gay scene you know and it was very much (laughs) that market um and 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 sort of in the heady days of of clubs like trade as well you know so it was you know sort of slightly slightly more up tempo kind of stuff that could, could be played in those kind of clubs as well as clubs like heaven um And yeah, I mean, you know, just from that, I just ended up working with a lot of different people that were on that scene. Um, So on the, you know, um, different DJs primarily. So I, I ended up doing, you know, the kind of classic thing that engineers do is, you know, working. With DJs that want to make a record, you know, and of course they they can't make a record because they're DJs. They only know about playing other people's records. Yeah, yes. So they, they would come in, they would come in a record with a, with a bunch of records and say, "Well, I kind of want to do something a bit like this." You know, can you do it? So would, you know, I'd be the person that would sit down there and do it. You know, um, uh, without sounding disparaging at all. Um, you know, that that sounds kind of worse than it is really, but it, but essentially sort of working as a kind of ghost producer for these DJs. So the D- DJs could put something out as being, you know, a whoever mix of something or you know my new single um and it would be um yeah you know they, yes. they hadn't actually performed anything on it at all do you know what i mean they come along with a bunch of ideas and that, that you know that isn't to sort of take anything away from the fact that they did come along with a, a load of ideas and energy you know um and so it would that would kind of you know spark a um you know a a creative process in the studio um but But yes but
0: it's interesting you mentioned that because because you know going back to that producer mark saunders he worked with tricky and and that sounded you know the classic album and he said it was bizarre because in tricky's flat the the floor he said was just vinyl records and he was Mm -hmm. like oh could you play that or could you go and get that one and he'd just literally be crunching over picking them up and trying to do something and this guy's completely and um, trying yeah. to what to do with this project that they were working on. Yeah. But, you know, he managed to do it. And he said it was kind of strange because you had to you had to sort of give Tricky the idea that he thought he'd come up with, you know, like you'd have mm. to slip it in his ear. The next day he'd go, oh, I've got this idea. And he'd think, oh, yeah, I, you know, I did mention that yesterday. But, you yeah. know, you had to slightly, you know, he said it was a very weird moment experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something that I very much got used to. Um, and, yeah, you know, there were... Um yeah, I mean, you know, and at the time I, I kind of picked up some management that wanted to look after me um, and, uh, and you know, they kind of got me involved with doing remix work and, and productions under various different guises. Um, and then one of the, again, the, the DJing thing was, was just one of those, it was just an accident that happened really. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, um, I started working with, um, with, a, with a DJ called Wayne G um, who he had come along via people like um i think it was rachel Auburn actually from the candy girls um who had um recommended that he work w- with me um they had been using a, a different engineer that they, they you know they, they still like to use but she'd recommended that he, he come along and work with me um and it was just a you know one of those sort of slightly bizarre phone calls out of the blue you know i've been recommended to come and do a, do a tune with you and, and i mean you know it became the um a very very long lasting friendship and i still make tunes with him now you know and, and you know we're, we're the best of friends he ended up being you know a gay guy being the best man at my wedding actually you know it was <laughs> it was an absolute scream but um uh yeah and he was he was the resident dj at heaven and i mean you know he was at the time he was young um and he had been given this amazing kind of saturday night residency on the main floor at heaven which you know was iconic big you know gay club in london um and he was kind of very instrumental in kind of shaping the sound of that room um and it just kind of came via him he just said oh you know he it was just sort of an assumption he said oh would it be in 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 your interest you know after sort of years of working together he 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 said would you be up for doing trying doing a dj set at heaven and you know just kind of assuming that i'd be able to do it and i was like yeah yeah i'd love to be able to do that and he said well you know it could be a regular thing um, you know, and sometimes I, I sometimes I need to be out of the country to do these international gigs, so it could be a regular thing. Um, yeah, you know, that would be brilliant if you could do it. And, I, and then the, the first slot that I got offered there was, was, you know, essentially to cover for him because he was out of the country. And I, I did not really have a clue. I mean, you know, at, at that point I just went, "Oh my God, I better go out and buy some decks and learn how to do this." You know, <laughs> it can't be that hard. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know. I mean, amazing kind of experience for your first proper DJ gig to you know walk out into a, a sort of two thousand person room, you know. Yes, to, absolutely. You know when you know most most DJs are fighting to play a half hour set for you know. A couple of pints of lager in your local pub aren't they do you know what I mean you know make a name for themselves like that but I, I was just you know it was just a baptism of fire it was just like yeah there you go there's this huge crowd that you can play to and because I think they just kind of assumed well you've made a lot of the records that these, these guys like dancing to so just turn up and play some of those records of course there's way way more to it than that I mean I think the first the, the first night that I did there was just you know I think I was pretty abysmal to be honest with you. Do you know what I mean? I don't remember feeling particularly great after it. And it was like, Oh God, you know, that was way harder than I thought it was going to be. And I probably didn't read the floor right at all. And all those kind of things you got used to as a DJ. and I think kind of word then got back to Wayne that, oh, you know, it hadn't been all that good. And, and, and Wayne just kind of persevered with me. And he said, well, look, you know, the, the, yeah you know, the managers are, are quite happy for you to come back and do another set, but maybe you could kind of just do a little kind of warm-up thing for me and I'll be there with you, you know, and that'll make you feel more confident. And if you kind of get stuck as to what to play, I'll kind of guide you a little bit. And, right, okay, fair, fair enough. And turned up and, they you know, and maybe it was just because I felt that, much, that, that bit more, com- you know, comfortable with him there that I kind of went, you know, it, it just went, absolutely swimmingly you know i'd kind of learned from my my mistakes from the first gig and and yeah and and, you know and i became a a regular resident there as well um so yeah um for about four years i think i did every saturday night there as well Um, and you know quite often with him um but quite often he was he was kind of getting to the point in the last couple of years of where he was doing so much more international work um that you know i would i would sometimes turn up there and do ridiculous you know seven hour sets you know for the the whole night you know
0: (laughs) ridiculous that's amazing
1: yeah it was it was it was really good fun but it was was one of those things where you know i didn't ever chase after it um you know i never chased after being a dj um and it was just you know i think people just assumed i'd be able to do it
0: (laughs) yes that's amazing
1: so have you i
0: mean and then you did a record label as well Oh, yeah I, d- I did do a
1: record label um yeah the, the the tough twins record label so that was another guy that I was working with um we were making kind of you know hard house tunes um the sort of funkier edge of hard hard house yeah and we and we decided to start a label
0: um, yes. cuz John Peel used and- to love playing happy 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 Hardcore, didn't he? Well, yeah, he On did. Yeah, show.
1: yeah. I mean, it wasn't wasn't ever quite as fast as that kind of stuff. But, but actually, I mean, you know, we, yeah. I think the reason why we did that was because, um, yeah, we we just put one record out and and you know just just for a laugh, we just kind of pressed it up ourselves and did, you know pressed a thousand copies of it or something like that and i think you know um and it was yeah it, it Judge Jules jumped on it and hammered it on the on the radio on saturday nights you know and so of course it just ended up you know selling several more thousands you know um yes yeah we and it turned, turned into a into a bit more of a label plus a plus a kind of remix team for a while um and yeah um and funnily enough the, just just recently it's just been all of it's just been reissued digitally so you can now buy a, a usb stick with all, all of the all of the tracks and remixes on um for the first time ever digitally and it, yeah i think it's i think it's all going up on spotify at the end of august wow um, this yeah, is fantastic. But, yeah i mean it's just it just funny how all this kind of you know it's sort of 20 year old back catalogue you know it was one of the things i kind of did during the the during not the last lockdown but the the, the one before was you know we, we kind of thought oh yeah people it's a bit of a shame that some of this stuff isn't actually out there digitally, isn't it? You know, so just yes. spent a bit of time remastering some of it and getting it out there. And, and, you know, um, yeah. So yeah, that was, that was something, again, it was kind of, you know, it, it had a shelf life of about two years at the time. It was very popular for a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, um, and, and then we kind of moved on and different, did different things. And, you know, I, I kind of, you know, stay in touch with him now. Um, yeah, we we've, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting that I've kind of, kind of remained more or less in that scene for a much, much longer amount of time. And it, the, the slightly bizarre thing about you, you sort of the, your initial question to me were, you know, I'd be interested in doing a, an interview and were you in Rosetta Stone? And my kind of response to that was that always comes back to haunt me because it was actually a fairly short period of time, but it's something... That a lot of people remember me for yeah, and, and but it's but it's it is a lot of people either remember me for that or the, or they don't know about that at all and they kind of know me for the for the dance music stuff so it's it's kind of you know it's it's slightly bizarre I think you know most people don't kind of make that kind of crossover thing really so it's um
0: yeah yeah well you're always kind of worried that you've asked somebody the wrong yeah I mean obviously I've done it where <laughs> you're such a band he's like no but I do I get asked that three times a year because obviously they've got the same name as a member of the band <laughs>
1: yeah yeah I mean yeah it's I mean it's, it's it's it is it is an interesting thing really but, but yeah I mean you know but it's a great but at the same time I, mean... I still
0: yeah, it's a great story, though. I mean, it's a it's a yeah. nice narrative. A bit like, you know, thinking about David Bowie and all his kind of different changes that he did from the 60s through to each decade, which it had a certain, you know, quality to yeah. it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, and it's something that I've always kind of, you know, I've never kind of just, just wanted to kind of stay still with stuff or 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 even just kind of, you know, get completely pigeonholed with something. You know, I mean, I've probably been more pigeonholed with something, you know, for, for a longer period of time because because it's something that that some you know people have have got to know me for, I guess. Um, but I, but I still stay very interested in um, in some of the alt scene as well. Really, um, you know, that's um, yeah. There's a there's a lot of you know. I, was, I still like a lot of that, that dark music as well. You know, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm quite enjoying some of these, you know. I mean, a lot of it's European stuff, actually, because it doesn't have a great homegrown scene for it anymore, you know, but so there's there's a great kind of German and French scene for all that kind of alternative music, um, much, much bigger in Europe. But there are a few, few great bands still here in the UK that are doing that kind of quite dark, you know, um, dark wave i guess you'd, you'd call it nowadays wouldn't you it's sort of um sort of more synthy based stuff yeah again still with drum machines but it's, it's still got that kind of goth eth- ethic to it and i'm I'm absolutely loving some of those bands um
0: yes there's a so band, yeah I've, yeah there's oh god i've interviewed him recently he was just brought out. dutch bands oh god they've got a funny little kind of name but he's been going from the 80s and um Something of something, I can't remember now, I should I should make a note of these things, shouldn't I? But it's interesting, mm-hmm. a lot of those kind of, yeah, people who have been into music, like there was another woman called Monica, Monica Muir, who was in various kind of bands in the 80s, and she's gone into doing soundtracks, because that's kind of, for, especially for films, and also mm. games as well, because she said that actually... Yeah pays a lot it's
1: great money that
0: yeah yeah i think that's It was like yeah okay you make loads of money and i'll i'll make soundtracks for you that's great and i'll do my little bunker in in hamburg so that's quite groovy so what is it that you're working on at the moment then and and sort of are you still doing the same you know studio work and and yeah
1: yeah yeah i'm still still doing that at the moment yeah i mean you know largely still doing largely doing a lot of remixing still um so still doing that um again it's, it's sort of yeah it tends to be the more kind of commercial edge of things i i guess more poppy edge cut of things and just kind of making dancey, dance-y a dancey remix of of things um that's yeah that's that's my my main thing so i'm still still you know churning stuff out with wayne um this year we i mean there was a remix team that i had in the early noughties um that was successful um we, we did a lot of kind of remixes for, for some, very, you know, very big artists at the time. You know, you, you're Annie Lennox's and, and um, uh, you know, all, all the kind of, you know, a lot of the big pop artists, you know, Mel C, um, you know, Atomic Kitten, all those kind of people, you know, I mean, just, just you name it, you know, we were doing Liberty X, all those kind of, you yes. know, very, very poppy bands. Um, and we were doing, you know, big remixes of, of those kind of things. And that, that kind of lasted for a few years in the early noughties. Um, um and um you know we've recently re- resurrected that that brand as well so that's that, that's that's actually what i'm working on right at the moment is one of those another remix for for that brand um i'm trying to bring that back um God, that's so that's fantastic. kind of interesting um and yeah you know I've, I've also got some ideas to get some 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 more kind of alt stuff together as well i mean you know it's a, a, a funnily enough again it's so you know Someone again from more from the kind of gay club scene who's gone who's gone into the the goth scene a little bit more is a guy called Mark Massive who has a band called Massive Ego. I don't know if you've heard mm. of them, but they're they're more of a, a kind of dark wave kind of band. Um and they're they're very much on the on the ascendancy again it's you know it sounds like very dark rave music you know it's you know it's got a lot of kind of trancey type of elements to it all very electronic but very kind of dark vocals and and, and dark kind of sounds to it um and it's amazing that there's so uh, there's still that kind of sound going so I've, I've been speaking to him um sort of somewhat tentatively recently but saying oh you know. It'd be, such you know we've been speaking for about 10 years saying we must must get something together at some point you know yeah i think because he hadn't been aware of my my past you know we'd kind of got (laughs) to know each other through the through the through the kind of club things you know what i mean oh god i forgot to ask
0: you because you were you worked with another band didn't you god i've forgotten this when you finished because i was listening to them today who did you go on to work with after oh Oh, children Children on
1: stun you're thinking yeah yes yes yeah yeah that was that was they were they were fun yeah they were fun um that was that was yeah i mean i did a few bits and pieces for them um over the years so yes i did did that i think you know sort of sort of pretty much straight away after i'd left rosetta that was that was the first thing that i kind of jumped onto was was doing a producing an ep for them and that was a lot of fun going over tastings and doing that and it was kind of you know they were from my my neck of the woods i mean you know they'd supported us quite a lot on the tour on on tours so you know we'd kind of got to know them but they were yeah they were a riot actually they were they were such you know they they were again they were they were just a kind of breath of fresh air actually really you know they they had a much less kind of gloomy take on things i mean you know again they were kind of very tongue-in-cheek goths you know and, and, they, and they, they and they're still going you know they're, <laughs> they're they've still got their, their die-hard following um
0: i know well i was listening to you know quite a bit of that bit of them recently you know and i um, thinking oh actually they, they also sound brilliant so
1: yeah, they did. They really, really sounded good. I mean, I think it was, you know, it was Neil who was the singer that was just very, very unique kind of sound to his vocal, you know, that was just just not like any of those kind of early 90s goth bands at all, you know, I mean, yeah, you kind of, you know, there was a, Especially that that kind of UK scene, there was, it was all very kind of low vocals and all very very serious, and then there, there was Neil kind of singing these lovely melodies. You know, it was just you know much more kind of yeah, slightly more more refreshing approach to it. But yeah, I mean, in in terms of guys, they were just they were just hilariously good fun to work with. So yeah, we we, <laughs> we did a did a, a couple of different kind of collaborations on things over the years, and that was that was a lot of fun.
0: Yes, um, oh that's yeah. good. So look, if you could have because you've done a huge amount of stuff with phenomenal decades i mean if you could have said something to an 18 your 18 six, 16, 16 18 year old self you know starting out some you know like a few bullet points of kind of advice that you've picked up wisdom over the decades i mean is there anything hmm. you would have gone yes i would have definitely just whispered that in there even if they had ignored you i just wondered if there was a few key points
1: yeah i mean absolutely absolutely there are um you know um and actually is it that is that is a little bit of something that i do anyway because i do i do do some some lecturing as well so you know teaching people how to do music production and that kind of stuff um so so i do regularly get to tell 16 18 year old kids (laughs) what they should be doing my 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 number one bit of advice to anybody and this isn't necessarily going to be for everybody because some people are incredibly driven to do their one thing that they love and that's that Um, but my bit of advice to having a career that might last a little bit longer is be adaptable you know is, is whatever the next opportunity that comes along that looks like it might be a good one have a go at it you know it might not appear on the surface to be exactly what you're into at that particular moment in time but it might be the one yeah. you know that might be the one that kind of just just pushes your career that a little bit further is you know don't discount anything you you know obviously don't do anything you think is completely rubbish because you won't do a good job of it but you know anything that comes along that you think actually i could i could do that you know, even if you've got to blag it a little bit, even if you didn't really know yes. anything very much about it, I would, that is my number one bit of advice is be adaptable, you know, be, be learn some different ways of doing things that are outside of your comfort zone. Um, uh, that's my number one bit of advice, I think, to anybody that's, that's wanting to get into this. I've, I, you know, I come across a lot of kids these days who are very single-minded, focused into, the, you know, I'm, I'm just going to produce this genre and that's that. And, you know, that's all I'm ever going to do. And it's like, well, you probably aren't always ever going to do that. Do you know what I mean? Because things change and music changes and, you know, um, and it's it's probably better to think you know there might be something that comes along that actually is a slightly better opportunity keep on doing that if you love doing that keep on doing that you know there's nothing to stop you doing what you love doing but perhaps you know if you're looking for opportunities and, and looking for ways to keep that career going and, and stop yourself having to get a, get a really really boring day job then you know <laughs> be adaptable yes. you know be be open you know keep your mind open to different things, you know, music's always changing and, and, you know, keep your mind open to different things. That That's my number one bit of advice. Yeah. Um, my, my number two bit of advice is, is stay in control of your finances. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's probably something that you'd, you'd probably hear from an awful lot of people that have been, <laughs> that have been through it is yeah. Stay in control of your finances um, as much as you possibly can, you know, um, don't get a manager until you need one basically you know especially nowadays you can stay you know nowadays you can stay in control of so much more of the stuff yourself for so much longer
0: yeah
1: and i think that's that's my my, my second bit of advice number one is be adaptable and the other one is, is is just try and stay in control of what you're doing for as long as you possibly can don't don't hold over the reins, hand over the reins to someone until basically the point that you can't look after yourself anymore because you've got you know you've you've got so much going on <laughs> yeah <laughs> that you yeah that you can't you can't manage everything yourself you know that's the only point at which you need a manager um yeah that, that would be my other bit of advice having you know having been through bad management situations it's you know yeah <clears throat> i think those things are they're still out there aren't they you know and i think you know there are still a lot of people out there that, that want to promise People quite a lot.
0: Yes, I mean, I I suppose actually that's interesting because I think most of the bands I've interviewed, I'd say, yeah, bad management is is a myth. Something that gets managed, you know, mentioned virtually in every interview. Mm. Because I don't, I suppose, no one really, you know, there's no apprenticeship what they might be but there's no sort of like this is how you become a manager people just blag it really badly yeah. and then yeah. sort of you know do things that you just think am not sure if that's management or just being a bit of a crook really but um
1: yeah and i think that's i think that's the nub of it really i think you know at the end of the day people that are good managers are people who actually genuinely care about what it is they're managing you know whoever whoever the artist is or whatever you know they're the people that actually really really believe in them Uh, you know they're they're always great managers aren't they um you know
0: yes um, miles copeland you can't
1: miles copeland yeah miles copeland i I forget his name led zeppelin's manager as well peter grant yeah peter grant the fantastic manager you know it's like yeah, I mean, you know, someone who really really totally believed and just thought, you know, the band just need to get on with doing what what they do and I I take care of everything else. Yeah, I mean terribly and an awful thug actually really, but at the same time a, a fantastically brilliant manager, yes. you know, because he 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 managed at a time when it wasn't popular to do so to enable them to be the artists that they they wanted to be, you know, and they were more successful as a result really, weren't they, you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, um, so yeah, um, uh, otherwise, I, I think I think people do fall into doing management because they're people's mates sometimes. And so they kind of yes. get tagged along to kind of do stuff. The, I mean, and the other thing is that, you know, an awful lot of managers are out there because they know that artists aren't actually terribly good at managing themselves. <laughs> yes true. you know so that would be the other thing is just get your head around how the business works you know so that's why i would say stay in control of your finances stay in control of whatever you're doing learn how the business works for yourself um because that way you can stay in control of it for longer um at the point at which it blows up then you probably can find a decent manager that actually will do something for you <laughs> you know yeah. um, and will help you take it to the next level but you know and, and even then not always but i think a lot of the time um you know it's a it's a lack of understanding isn't it especially for young bands and young artists and things like that they think well you know i I kind of need someone to look after that because because you know i just want to write songs
0: (laughs) i know that's it that's nice but uh, yeah yeah
1: yeah Yeah,
0: there's an amazing lack of money really in the music world isn't there at times
1: yeah and i think at the moment as well you know it's like i mean we you know it's 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 kind of worse than ever in so many ways, isn't it? I mean, you know, especially kind of post-pandemic, where you know people still can't get out and do gigs, can they? Which is the the major source of income for most people. You know, it's um
0: yeah, and there's a lot of bands as well. I suppose strangely they, were, I suppose older bands, but I suppose this applies for the younger bands. You know, like touring in Europe was a big thing. It was like okay, mm. we're gonna we're gonna have thirty dates. In 30 days, we're going to really hurt ourselves because we're a bit too old for this gig. But that's the only way the band can keep going, and yeah. we're just going to really rock around Europe, sell yeah. that merchandise, you know, hire the vehicle. Let's let's keep it all, you know. Let and they've got to that you know age where they know that let's not blow any money, let's not have any days off. Let's yeah. just you know let's just try and get it together for for yeah. a, a month and do do the work, and then we'll spend four months. Getting our backs sorted out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly
1: that. But you know, we yeah. could
0: just about do it. We could keep the band going with that gig, with that that thirty dates in Europe. But goodness, yeah. what will happen there? Yes. It's yes. a human, isn't
1: it? It is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a funny time at the moment. You know, I think a, a, I think a lot of the, you know what we've what we've got to remember is that, that this is still a multi-billion pound industry you know um there's you know there's still a lot of people making a lot of money from it even if you only get a tiny fraction of that if, if you can make a living out of it there is a living to be made out of it um but you can you know you've got to be careful about how you do it nowadays more than ever um and it's you know unfortunately it's it's only the top two percent really of of artists that are really making a very very good living you know and, yes. and they are the you know the, the, that is the top two percent of the biggest stars isn't it really you know who are you know making a decent decent living off their spotify streams and you know and off youtube and you know off all the rest of it and off the merchandise without having to you know break their backs doing relentless tours around europe as you say you know because, yes. um, yeah otherwise the reality of it is it is kind of it's all micro income and you know counting pennies.
0: Keep looking after that's <laughs> my mum used to say, look after the pennies and the pants yeah, after the Yeah, sale. I think that's probably it isn't it really. But yeah. Mm. Well, look, Paul, well thank you ever so much for this. It's been amazing. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And, uh, okay, I think we'll leave it there. It'll get just too too emotional. The goodbyes, the farewells, all that excitement. Anyway, a massive thank you to Paul Young for giving me the time for that interview. Uh, This has been David or The C86 Show, just in case you didn't know. And well done for getting this far in the the, uh, interview as well. You deserve a medal. But uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do The C86 Show. Yes, it's all there. Do keep it positive and nice, because otherwise, why bother listening? And also, all these have been um, archived, podcast, all that kind of groovy stuff. So, um, podcast, that's right. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just do C86 show and there's hundreds of them. So fill your boots. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.